When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, January 25th, day 12 of the 2024 Australian Open, now officially in the books. It was our first day of single semifinal action at a major this season. And as such, you got high expectations going in as a tennis fan. First major of the year, everyone's fresh, everyone's fit. You want to see some high-level tennis. And while both of our matches were ultimately decided in straight sets, I think we got precisely that. I thought we saw thoroughly dramatic, thoroughly competitive, thoroughly entertaining tennis in each of our matches from start to finish. Plenty of twists and turns as both Arena Sabalenka, Jung Chin Wen advance to the Australian Open final. Obviously, what I want to do for all of you listeners here on today's show is recap each of those matches in case you missed out on any of the action. Offer my thoughts on what allowed both Sabalenka and Chin Wen to ultimately advance and Look, obviously got to start with the headline matchup. It's the first time since 2011 that we see a U.S. Open final rematch happen at the subsequent Australian Open. Obviously, this was a reversal of fortune in terms of the result, but it's a continuation of a storyline we've seen emerge, dare I say, for the last 15 months. And that's when Arena Sabalenka is playing her very best tennis. It might just be the best tennis we have in the entire women's game right now. Just a clinical display of power tennis, ultimately allowing her to advance. And again, she had to overcome some adversity. That 5-2 break lead she had in set number one, it went away real quick as golf ultimately served for that first set. But again, her ability to break back, her ability to ultimately get through this match in straight sets, get over that mental hurdle of the early slide, Dare I say that's something we may not have seen from Sabalenka even as recently as last season. So obviously, I want to break down the mechanics of her victory today. And then I've got to talk 21-year-old Jung Chin Wen. If you are a longtime listener of this mini break podcast, you know I have for quite a bit of time now been high on the future of the 21-year-old. The ceiling is abundantly clear. The weapons she possesses, the athleticism she possesses, the totality of things she can do with both of those two traits in weaponizing them to perform at a level and display this a style of aggressive tennis that is really difficult for even someone with the weapons of Diana Yastremska to deal with. We saw it all on display last night. And again, what was, dare I say, a clinic of power tennis between two young ascending players in the women's ranks. And obviously the Yastremska story is a little bit more complicated than just calling her an ascending player. But even in the loss last night, I thought there's so much goes without saying, so much for her to build off of moving forward. She played a level high enough to be displayed in a slam semifinal, and if she can replicate that level moving forward, you know, again, the ceiling is beyond the roof for the 23-year-old, and yet... It's time to regale in all things Jun Chin Wen. It's been an unconventional pathway for her to this Australian Open final, certainly an ideal pathway as well, and yet she gets this milestone. She accomplishes this feat. Let's talk about the significance of what it means for the 21-year-old to reach her first semifinal and how she got there here on today's show. And then, last but certainly not least, we got Blockbuster. Blockbuster. Clear the schedule, set the alarm, maybe even get up at 3.30 a.m. for the start of each of these matches if your calendar allows it because Novak Djokovic is playing Yannick Sinner. Daniil Medvedev is playing Sasha Zverev. Those are our two men's single semifinals. And again, on paper alone, 
the case makes itself for why these matches should be so compelling on today's show. I want to remind you all of the history between those uh, within those two matchups, offer you my tactical advantages I see for each player, talk you through what a win looks like for each guy as well. Look, we only got four matches to discuss. I still think it's going to be a jam-packed show that all of you listeners are going to enjoy, of course. Unfortunately, you won't be able to enjoy it on YouTube today. We are back just to the podcast medium for the next four days as we prepare for our 2024 ITA Division I men's and women's kickoff weekend coverage. We have the ceremonial, symbolic start to every college tennis season available for all of you tennis fans over the next four days, Friday, Saturday. Sunday, we're going to be on both ESPN Plus and our Crack Rackets YouTube channel displaying 60 of the best men's and women's teams throughout the country as they all compete for a spot at the national team indoor championships in February. The case makes itself, right? Players like Ben Shelton, Emma Navarro, Peyton Stearns, Danielle Collins, Cam Norrie, Yannick Hanfman. I mean, again, I, I can... Nuno Borges, the most recent example on the men's side at this Australian Open, playing Medvedev to four sets. All of these players hone their craft at the collegiate level. And if you want to know who the next rising star like that might be, come check out our coverage as all of the best players in the country pretty much going to be in action across our various streams. I will be hosting everything on Friday, Crack Rackets YouTube channel, ESPN Plus, but then we're going to be spread out a couple of commentators wide Saturday, Sunday, ESPN Plus, our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. Again, our first matches, 10 a.m. tomorrow, 9 a.m. Saturday, 10 a.m. Sunday, 2.30 p.m. Monday on ESPN Plus as well. Maximize that ESPN Plus account you got for this Australian Open. Come watch some really high level and, dare I say, the most energetic level of tennis you will see across the globe. College tennis kickoff weekend, Friday through Monday. We'll have coverage for you across our various Cracked Rackets platforms. Again, because of preparation for that coverage, that's why we don't have video for all of you of this mini break today. We had some technical difficulties yesterday. Hopefully, we'll have that all worked out. We'll be back to you all next week as the tennis season continues to rock and roll into a new year, of course. Last but not least, just a friendly reminder, make sure you're liking, rating, subscribing, reviewing not just this podcast, but the Great Shot podcast feed, Cracked Interviews podcast feed, and our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel so you don't miss out on any of our 2024 coverage. Yes, the year's first major is nearing its end, but then we roll into February. You've got Rotterdam. You've got Dubai. You've got the South American clay court swing. All of a sudden, we'll be in Delray Beach. We'll have Dallas, and then it'll be the Sunshine Swing. Indian Wells, Miami, it sneaks up on you real fast. You don't want to miss any out on anything in between. Make sure you're subscribed as we will continue to have these daily podcasts for you day in, day out throughout the course of the 2024 tennis season. All right. That's enough of an intro. That's enough plugging. Thank you to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Let's talk day 12 at the 2024 Australian Open. Let's start with Sabalenka Golf. I thought it lived up to the hype. Again, a 7-6-6-4 victory for Arena Sabalenka, where, yes, she was in control from the start. Let's be abundantly clear. Sabalenka right out of the gates, breaking Coco Goff for two love. Now, credit to Goff, gets that break right back for one two. But it was ultimately Sabalenka who, with that same combination of overwhelming first strike aggression, whether it's the first serve, the plus one forehand or backhand from there, or even her return of serve, the depth, the pace at which that return of serve is coming in. Again, if the 25-year-old gets her racket, gets her hands on the ball with her combination of size, speed, and strength, you're just in serious trouble as her opponent right now. And that ball was on the body of Coco Goff so quickly. There was nothing Goff could do. Again, it's not that her forehand was exposed in a way you might sometimes have characterized it earlier in her career. The way Sabalenka was striking the ball, everyone's forehand would be exposed. Everyone's ground strokes would be exposed. And it didn't help that Goff only made 57% of her first serves in this match. Set number one, she made 63% of them, but three of 17. Three of 17 on second serve points. Six double faults in that first set, indicative of the fact that, look, she knew she had to take a big rip, try and add some more miles per hour, and again, be a bit more aggressive on that shot because both wings, Sabalenka was just striking the return so cleanly. 
5-2, Arena Sabalenka leads. And even when Coco Goff held for 3-5, you just thought, okay, with how this is going, this has just been the pathway, the narrative for Arena Sabalenka all month long. Only Elena Rabakina, who might be the only player right now in women's tennis who's able to match Sabalenka's peak power tennis shot for shot. Obviously, we saw that in Brisbane. That's what it took to take the ball off of Sabalenka's rackets to, again, remove the match from her terms. Sabalenka then blanked, though, blinked for the first time. The first time, dare I say, of this season where, you know, again, some forehand, obviously the break point in particular where she has a plus one forehand. Goff gets good depth on that return of serve, but it was a pretty routine plus one forehand for Sabalenka. She misses it in the net. That happened a couple of times in that 3-5 service game where she's broken. Now all of a sudden, Goff's got a little momentum. Goff holds 4-5 all. Now all of a sudden, again, you can see the frustration starting to mount for Sabalenka. More loose errors in her 5-all service game. She gets broken for 6-5. All of a sudden, you are thinking to yourself, how in the name of all things tennis gods is Coco Goff going to steal this first set? She has not been the better player. It has been Arena Sabalenka dictating the terms of play uh, to that point again. Sabalenka ultimately instead, excuse me, 16 winners to Goff's 11. But again, Goff 3 of 17. On second serve points, Sabalenka had made 77% of her first serves throughout the course of that first set and to that point in the match. Again, that number was that high. And then Sabalenka woke up and she connected on a couple of powerful returns of serve, is able to get depth into that Coco Goff forehand wing. And again, as Goff tries to extend it out on the break point, she forces that forehand a little bit long. Now, all of a sudden, we're heading to a breaker where Sabalenka is able to reassert herself. Sabalenka able to take a 7-2 breaker, and somehow she escapes that first set. And let's just be clear. I don't know if Arena Sabalenka is able to do that last season. You look for Sabalenka, who's 34-4 and now since the start of the 2022 U.S. Open at the Majors. That's ridiculous. 34-4 and during that stretch. She's made semifinals or further at all six of those majors. She's now made the final at three of them. Uh, by the way, all three of them. Uh, three of the four hardcourt majors. Three of the last four in her last three consecutive hardcourt majors that she's played. But again... You kind of go back and look at those losses. Anj Jabur, similar situation. She loses a tight first set seven. Uh, she wins a tight first set seven six. Ultimately, Jabur four and three the rest of the way against Goff last time. She wins a six two first set three and two Goff the rest of the way. She allowed maybe some leaks at the end of the opening sets to bleed in to the rest of her performance. That just wasn't the case at all in this match. Again, Arena Sabalenka unbroken in that second set on her way to the 6-4 set and ultimately on her way to the final. And it was just a sustaining of everything we saw in set number one. 76 per- first serve percentage in set one, 74% in set number two. 17, uh, 15 winners in set number one, 17 winners in set number two against 14 and 13 unforced errors respectively. Like one of five on breakpoint chances doesn't sound the best, but she faced zero, zero breakpoint chances in set number two. She lost five points on serve. Five, excuse me. She lost six points on serve. Six points on serve in set number two, and one of those was a double fault. She played five service games in set two. She lost six points. If that's not the display of power tennis I just saw with my eyes, sometimes, again, um, it, it's a podcast medium, right? I can't show you video. I can't say. I, I can point you to the points and say, look at her forehand dominate. Look at the plus one forehand dominate in any of her service games. Pick any of her points in the second set. You can point to any example you would like to. She did not face pressure in any of her second set service games. There wasn't a love 30 hole. There wasn't a fifteen forty. she even had to dig out of. She didn't face a single break point because the combination of her first serve, which if she's making 74% of the time, I don't know how anyone is beating her. It just sets up, even if Goff, who I thought did a better job, I thought she actually did increase her aggression, increase, excuse me, the aggressiveness of her positioning on the return of serve in set number two with the intention of just trying to take more time away from Marina Sabalenka saying, making the bet of, okay, I'm just going to use your pace on the serve, no backswing, redirect that ball, hope that I can generate enough depth off of that that at least you don't have an easy plus one target to pick two or you just have less time to get to that plus one target. 
Didn't work. Again, part of that is elite pace to the Coco Golf forehand wing on the return of serve can still be a problem for golf. It was. That's how well Arena Sabalenka was serving. But that's how well you have to serve to expose that on golf. And to Sabalenka's credit, she did. I thought golf was very smart in picking her spots to be aggressive. I mean, again, Coco Golf broken once in that second set. I thought she came forward pretty successfully throughout the course of this match to at least try and give Sabalenka some sort of different look. And you look at the net points in this 10 of 12, which doesn't sound like a big number, but there just weren't that many opportunities. I mean, 22 winners against 20 unforced errors. That sounds like an in-the-margins performance for Coco Goff, but that speaks to she had to react to everything Sabalenka threw at her. Short of Coco Goff landing a first serve, and even then she won 65% of her first serve points. Good, not great. Short of her landing a definitive first serve that gave her an easy plus one opportunity, she was always on her back foot. And again, that's why that 2-5 stretch, her turning things around, she did get a little bit more aggressive, but a lot of that was Sabalenka error-driven. And that just gets back to my theme here. Arena Sabalenka dictated the terms of this one from start to finish. And with all due respect to the golf run to 6-5, or maybe as a fan, you started to let creep in. Who I've seen Sabalenka have this sort of mental yip impact her before. Sabalenka steadied the course. And I think the most impressive part of was through that yips, it's not like the double faults piled up. It's not like the first serve went away. No, she made a couple of forehand errors. That happens with her style of play. Right back on script, right back to the narrative from there. Again, the fact that she can generate so much power while holding a position so close to the baseline on the return of the serve as well just speaks to the sort of athlete she is. Six and four. Like I, 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 the the single thing I would say is it was on set. Uh, the, traits, I would say, is it was on Sabalenka's terms. Yes, the pace that Sabalenka plays with can still trouble the Coco Golf forehand, and I think that was how Sabalenka was able to manufacture a lot of offensive opportunities. I thought Golf played Sabalenka about as even as can be played backhand to backhand cross right now, but still that ball from Sabalenka coming in with so much pace, it was hard for Coco Golf to find opportunities for easy redirect down the lines or easy opportunities to be the aggressor once we'd hit a fifth shot in the rally. And by the way, you look at the rally analysis, not only was Coke, uh, not only was Sabalenka, excuse me, Sabalenka plus 20 in the zero to four shot rallies speaks to, uh, again, her dominance there and over 70, uh, 60% of the points, zero to four shot rallies. She was plus one on the five to shot eight rallies, minus seven on the nine plus shot rallies, but they only had 13 rallies in this match go over nine shots even in those five to eight shot rallies, again, even if Coco Goff was able to respond to the first strike, Sabalenka was still in control and she never let up. But again, it's a credit to Coco Goff's athleticism that she was able to force as many second and third strikes out of Sabalenka as she was. It also speaks to the continued improvement for Coco Goff as an aggressor that she was able to, again, make a little bit of a push, be only broken once, staring down the gauntlet of the relentlessness of Arena Sabalenka's power. But again, Sabalenka's the story. She advances to the final of this Australian Open without having dropped the set. Again, she had dropped 16 games coming into this, so now she's dropped 26 games across 12 sets. She's playing an average of six, two sets to get to this Australian Open. That's absolutely ridiculous. And obviously, you look at the statistics, courtesy of our friends at OptaAce, Arena Sabalenka is the second player this century, second player this century to reach three consecutive hardcourt women's singles Grand Slam finals. The other to do it, Victoria Azarenka, her fellow countrywoman who reached four straight, 2012-2013. Sabalenka, the first player since Serena Williams in 2016-17 to reach back-to-back finals at the Australian Open in women's singles. That's pretty good, right? When your comparisons are Serena Williams and Victoria Azarenka, when you're talking 21st century, no, that's not pretty good. That's elite. This is also the highest ranked opponent Arena Sabalenka has beaten in her career at a Grand Slam event, surpassing her victory over Kvitova at the uh, 2018 U.S. Open. Again, a shout out as always to our friends at OptaAce for those statistics. I said the record earlier. Sabalenka, since the start of that 2022 U.S. Open, has made six straight slam semifinals or better, three out of six finals, three straight finals, 34-4 and four overall. Oh, by the way, against top 10 opponents at these majors now during this stretch, 
She's two and three. Interesting. That number is lower than I expected it to be against the top 20, though. She's seven and three. That's the number I was looking for overall at the majors since the start of 2022. Now, eight and 10 against top 10 opponents over her last 52 weeks. That number sounds lower than you would expect. But I mean, again, it's been 15 months of this. Like, it's unequivocal. Arena Sabalenka is either the best or tied for the best best uh, player in the world. Like, I just think all due respect to Iga Swiatek, Iga Swiatek fans, obviously, I still think Iga's best tennis is the best tennis, particularly on clay courts, like without a doubt in the world. But man, you just watch the power tennis display of Arena Sabalenka and the way she has made everyone uncomfortable so far this month. And again, she's now 10 and one overall in the month, the one month that lost a ridiculous level to uh, to Elena Rabakin, excuse me, look for her through 11 matches. She's breaking serve 54% of the time. She's also holding serve 85.7% of the time. Both numbers would be the highest numbers I've ever seen over the course of a single season in the women's game. If sustained for the next 10 months, I don't think that's very likely. But again, 85.7% hold percentage. She's hitting aces, by the way, one out of every 10 serves. Arena Sabalenka hits one out of every first serve, six, uh, 10 first serves she lands is an ace. Over a 10% ace percentage. It's ridiculous. Everything's ridiculous. The eye test says it as well. She is just overwhelming people. And in my tennis lifetime, there's a reason I call it Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. Because it's Serena Williams-esque. And I do not say that lightly. But that's what makes the contrast in the Sviantec-Sabalenka dichotomy of their game styles so fascinating. It's why I want to see them play as much as possible at these big events because it is now time to say, you've seen it six majors consecutively in 18 months now. Sabalenka has been as consistent over these last 18 months as any player at the top of women's tennis, and that includes Iga Sviantec. And with all due respect to the rise of Goff, who, by the way, yes, Coco Goff loses this match. If you're Coco Goff, you come out of this more than glass half full out of the month of January. You defended your title in Auckland. Uh, obviously, you look for Coco Goff now. She's 34-5 and five since the end of Wimbledon. Her five losses, Pagula twice, Sviantec twice, and Sabalenka She's feeling just fine coming out of the month of January. Everything we saw from her to end last season seems to have sustained, if not gotten better, here in 2024. But Sabalenka is a buzzsaw, and you just can't deny it. I mean, again, I need to see Sabalenka and Iga play. Like, I need to see them play more frequently. I know Iga got her at the tour finals. Certainly, again, that was a notable data point. It's why coming into this season, I thought the belt was Iga's to lose. After this month of January, Sabalenka has had, and you can't say it's been a cupcake run for her because she's faced two top uh, 10 seeds now back-to-back in Krechikova, in Coco Goff. She faced a very much, a very confident Amanda Nisimova in round of 16. We know how uncomfortable that power tennis can make anyone. It was someone she had a losing record to in her career entering that match. Lysia Serenko is number two in break percentage amongst top 50 players on the WTA Tour over the last 52 weeks. Sabalenka beat her 0-0. She beat Vika. She beat Kasatkina in Brisbane as well. Sabalenka is the best player in the world right now. Again, and that is the first time I have said that in the Iga era, that I think someone is just her best, is as good as Iga's right now. And she's playing more consistently towards that best, at least here in the month of January. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying you doubt Iga moving forward. I'm not even saying Iga can't get back to being back right on tier number one with a good Middle East stretch, with a good sunshine swing stretch. The delta between the two, extraordinarily narrow. Keep in mind, yes, Iga lost to Linda Neskova. She had, what, 18 match win streak heading into that one. Sabalenka's number one in the world. Her tennis right now is just the best we have seen throughout this month of January. And this is coming from someone who tweeted, I think, in week number one of the season. I think Iga might win all four slams this year. The level these two are playing is stunning. Like, it's just, it's beyond Hall of Fame caliber. It's like, these are Pantheon-level performances that we are seeing. And I don't say that lightly. Again, Sabalenka has blitzed her way to this final without dropping a set. She's faced three seeds, two top 10 seeds as well. 
six and four over Coco Goff probably should have been a three and four result also. I mean, again, the, the whole premise of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, shout out Jeff Sackman, there was a lock in the country club that no one could ever seem to jimmy properly. And one day someone did, and they opened the lock to see what was in it in the safe, and it was a photo of Arena Sabalenka, who might just be the answer to the question, where does Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club go next? I think we have our acting president. It's Arena Sabalenka, 6-4 and four over Coco Goff. No mental no mental struggle. Bounced right back after blowing that 5-2 lead, and that was the most impressive part, the steadiness through set number two as well. She didn't even seem overly enthusiastic after the victory. It just felt like this was par for the course, and now the real challenge is what lies ahead. And again, third career slam final for Arena Sabalenka. They've all come in the last five slams. Speaks to her level. If you're Coco Goff, again, you ain't worried at all. Uh, Coco Goff continuing. I already said the record. She's lost five matches since the end of Wimbledon. Another semifinal for her at a, as a teenager at the major. She's going to leave here tied with her career high number three in the rankings. Sabalenka through to the final where she is a 61% favorite according to the Tennis Abstract Singles forecast against her opponent, 21-year-old Jung Chin Wen. I mean, look, I, I reflecting upon that Sabalenka segment, I know there's a lot of repeating in the reveling of her dominance, but... I do need to also revel in just what was the clear telltale signs that this was Chin Wen's future as far back as the 2022 French Open when the only player to get a set off of Iga Sviantek was this 19-year-old by the name of Jung Chin Wen. And again, that was the best version maybe of Iga Sviantek. Well, I don't know if it's the best version we've seen of her today. Maybe the best clay court single-season performance we saw from her. Certainly, statistically, that 2022 clay court performance were reminders she didn't lose a single match. And Chin Wen was one of the rare players who could actually get a set off of her because the power tennis she was capable of displaying, the heaviness of her ball, even at 19 years old, if it wasn't its most consistent, it made Sviantek uncomfortable. And that was the theme in Chin Wen's 4-4 and victory over Diana Yastremska. She just, her power tennis, the action on her ball, it disrupted what Yastremska wanted to do. It got on the Yastremska forehand shoulder high enough and fast enough that Yastremska's big loopy backswing, she just didn't have time to do that without generating an error. That said, again, Yastremska had plenty of plus one opportunities, plenty of power disrupt, uh, you know, forget what you're doing. I'm going to break up this point and disrupt the rhythm right now moments as well. Look, there weren't a ton of extended rallies in this match either. You look at the rally analysis, there were 130 points played, 93 of them, zero to four shot rallies, just six rallies over nine shots, 31 in that five to eight range. Again, this was very straightforward, plus one. Who's the aggressor from the start? If you miss your first serve, I'm stepping in, taking a big cut on the return of serve, and I'd rather miss it long than take a neutral swing and just let you be the aggressor from there. And again, Yastremska was good. Chinwen was better. Yastremska's ball was a little flatter. Chinwen's was more dynamic. Like Chinwen's could find the angles and get Yastremska, I think, stretched more uncomfortably than vice versa, at least on this particular day. And then obviously, again, I think the serving delta, Chinwen, just one of those special first serves. Dare I say one of the top five first serves we have already on the WTA Tour. And you look at the Tennis Abstract singles forecast, Chinwen not only top 15 in hold percentage over the last 52 weeks. I'm curious, first serve win percentage, particularly the stats indicate what my eyes are saying. Chin Wen, number one in first serve win percentage amongst top 100 players, 73.3%. That's better than Rabakina, Sabalenka, Garcia, Samsonova, even Sviantek, which, by the way, with Kvitova, that's the over 70% club. Chin Wen's number one in first serve win percentage. Now, she's only made 51.4% of her first serves over the course of her last 52 weeks. And for the record, that ranks 50th amongst top 50 players. When that first serve goes in, it is as impactful, as effective as any first serve we have on the WTA Tour right now. And she only made it 55% of the time in this match, but she won 76% 
of her first serve points, dropping just nine points on her first serve throughout the duration of the match. Yastremska, by the way, making just 54% of her first serves. She won 62% of those points. Again, sort of a demonstration. Chin Wen's first serve, the amplified strength compared to Yastremska in that statistic to contextualize it for you. I mean, look, for Jun Chin Wen, it's her first career major final, obviously. It's her fifth career final at the tour level, and four of her five career tour level finals have come since the end of Wimbledon last year. She is now 28-7. and seven. It's an 80% win percentage since Wimbledon has ended. She's 23-0 and 0 now. 23-0 and 0 against opponents ranked outside the top 20 during that stretch. Beating who you are supposed to beat, as I always reiterate, is half the job in tennis. If you're ranked higher than someone, prove it. Beat them. She's done that 23 consecutive times now since the end of Wimbledon. I think Yastremska, who obviously is going to move into the top 30 after this semifinal, is certainly playing top 20 caliber level tennis right now. And yet Chin Wens was just a little bit more dynamic. Again, I think her ability to get that ball up on the shoulder of Yastremska versus Yastremska, who had to rely more on getting that ball just straight up by Chin Wen, who with all of her power is still remarkably fluid, remarkably quick first step. One of those rare players, it's her, it's Goff, it's Sviantek, who can slide into the corners as movers and slide in and out of shots, and it's just so impressive. I mean, again, this is where Chin Wen belongs at this level, and I know now, you know, she's 6-10 and ten in her career against top 10 opponents, and she's going to face a second seed in Arena Sabalenka, who beat her in the U.S. Open quarterfinals 1-4 last season, but... It's a moment Chin Wen deserves, and obviously to get to the stats, courtesy of our friends at OptaAce, who always have good ones for us, you look what Chin Wen has managed to accomplish in achieving this final. Jung Chin Wen now, uh, you look, she is the second youngest Asian male or female player in the open era to reach a slam final. Not the second youngest Chinese player. Second youngest for an entire continent, Junction when the only player she, she's older than, Naomi Osaka, who, of course, made that 2018 U.S. Open final at the age of 20. Chin Wen only the second player, player in the Open era as well to defeat six unseeded players en route to a women's singles final at the Australian Open. Aranxa Sanchez, the other, in 1995. So it's the first time it's happened since I was literally born with this victory, she's not only into the top 10, she's up to number 7 now in the live rankings. That's a new career high. You looked at her from an ELO rating perspective coming into this event. Chin Wen was 6 overall in the ELO ratings, 7 in 2023 specific ELO ratings. So if you measured it not by where and when she played as the WTA rankings do, but by who she played and what the score was, the numbers have been telling us she has been a top 10 player for 6 months consecutively now. This sort of result is a feather in the cap signifying that fact, and obviously she was the byproduct of, look, the one player who was able to stand when everyone else fell, right? Rabakina falls, Pagula falls, Sakari, I don't remember if she was in the top or the bottom half, so I'm going to erase her, but Rabakina falls, Pagula falls, Sviantek falls, Ostapenko loses to Vika, Vika then loses to, in the subsequent round to Yastremska, like... All these different upsets happened around Junction when throughout the course of this 2024 Australian Open. And yet through it all, you know, yes, she drops three sets, but guess what? Six victories. She is through to an Australian Open final, a major final for the first time in her career. And again, she's been pretty dominant on serve to do so. She's only been broken more than twice in a match in two of her six matches played. Uh, one of them, a match decided 7-6 in the third, her win over Wang Yafan in round three. The other, her first round match against Ashlyn Kruger. So maybe you can even throw that one out she can hit the slice serve out wide on the uh, on the deuce side so well to set up her inside out plus one forehand or her straight line drive backhand cross forehand, which she hits so well. When she does have time on the forehand, her ability to get outside that ball and, again, generate angle cross court, her ability to drive backhand line. And then, again, fundamentally underpinning all of that athleticism is uh, – all of that power, excuse me – 
is a quality I think she shares with Arena Sabalenka. It's not just that she can play that degree of power tennis. She can play a little defense as well. Like she moves so well for someone with her height, so fluid and can extend rallies. Yeah, a little bit more comfortable playing the backhand, uh, the forehand slice, excuse me, when pressured by that side on the run. And I do think her on the run forehand because it is a big backswing. When you force her to hit it on the run, that's when it definitely can get a little leaky on her and miss long or miss wide, whatever it may be. But she has the speed to back it up, and if she hits that slice with enough depth, get things back to neutral, now all of a sudden she uses her speed to get on top of you, to take a big cut, to reassert herself as the aggressor. And again, she was just better at doing that that in this match than Yastremska was. Yastremska ultimately up in early break, two love in that opening set, but Chinwen gets it right back. You know, again, Chinwen goes up in early break in set number two. Yastrzemska gets it right back. Chin went able to break again from there and pull away. Again, this was a four and four match. Yastrzemska was broken. Uh, excuse me. Chin went was broken once per set. Yastrzemska broken twice per set, which again, broken four out of 10 service games sounds rough, but this was a pretty straightforward power tennis matchup. This was plus one aggression. You see ball short, you take ball big. Yastrzemska hit more winners. She also hit more unforced errors, but the ratio was pretty tight across the board. I mean, again, you look at the total points won in this match. Yes, it was a straight set four and four. Chinwen 72 to Yastrzemska's 58. Six points a set here and there. That feels about right. Like a few plus one, a few too many loose plus one errors from Yastrzemska, a few better backhand returns from Chinwen to force those plus one errors. And I thought Chinwen was really good depth down the center on the return of serve. She wasn't trying to open up any extra angles, open up any extra space. She wanted to take time away and play depth down the center and just not make anything easy for Yastrzemska with her plus one shot off the serve. And again, for the most part, she had success doing that. She was better at executing the plus one aggression. Again, plus 13 in that category. That's ultimately the difference. Chin Wen, four and four. She is through to her first major final. And again, obviously the Yastrzemska side of things, massive win for the 23-year-old. She's just back in the conversation. 29 in the live rankings. We'll see her at every big event she wants to play now moving forward this year. The big one we're all looking forward to see, again, a display of power tennis, a display of big serving, a display of athleticism as Chin Wen takes on Sabalenka, second career head-to-head matchup. It's a rematch from the 2023 U.S. Open against Sabalenka, 1-4 in, in that match over Chin Wen. Sabalenka did not face a break point on that day. I'm not sure if she's faced a break point since. Obviously, I'm being facetious there. I'm well aware that she has, but ugh. That one's going to be a fun one. Again, I worry about the Chinwen forehand technique breaking down against the relentless aggression of Sabalenka, much as happened on the margins to Coco Goff. Sabalenka just kind of the better version of everything Chinwen wants to do at her best right now. Chinwen's certainly a little bit more fluid as a mover, but you just can't hit a slice against Arena Sabalenka when pressured because if you hit a slice, now she gets to continue to pressure you and she's just swinging so freely. Sabalenka, 61% favorite according to Tennis Abstract. I think that's a little low just because I have eyes and Arena Sabalenka is playing as well as I have anyone not named seen anyone not named Serena Williams play. Not named Serena or Iga Shviantek. I should say that. Iga's played as well at times as well. So again, in my tennis fandom lifetime on the women's tour. And I guess a little Justine Ennin in there as well. I never saw it, really, the prime versions of Sharapova because there were so many injuries. And, you know, again, I was end of high school, start of college during the Vika era, so I was a little bit disconnected from the world. But that's my short list of, like, who's the best tennis I have seen at their best with my two eyes. Osaka certainly is in that short list of the conversation, and dress. Andrescu catching fire was something else, but Sabalenka's done it for six months consecutively now. It's just like, again, her, Iga, Serena, those are the three I have best seen, I've seen that have played best in my time, and I just wouldn't put Chin Wen on that level quite yet, even if, again, I have long been calling for her continued ascension, and certainly the 21-year-old reaching the slam final against second youngest player from the continent of Asia to reach a slam final, trailing just Naomi Osaka. That puts her in a special category of player moving forward. That's your look at the Australian Open women's single semifinals. Again, we'll preview that women's final matchup tomorrow when I have more time to dive into the statistics. Go rewatch their quarterfinal bout. 
That's what, precisely what I've done over the last 24 hours in preparation of previewing these next two matches I want to end the show with. Let's talk day 13 at the Australian Open and, of course, preview our men's single semifinals. Let's start with the headline matchup. We saw it three times in the last 10 days of the 2023 season. Top seed Novak Djokovic taking on fourth-seeded Yannick Sinner. This might be the tightest I've ever seen a tennis abstract match projection as it relates to a Djokovic match. Djokovic still the favorite, only 51.3%. Of course, Novak 4-2 and two in his career against Yannick Sinner. Sinner's two victories, three sets at both the Tour Finals and Davis Cup last year. Novak did get him in the Tour Finals finals match for what it's worth. Uh, you look overall for Novak now. His pathway to the semifinals, victories over Prismich, Popperin, Echeverry, Manorino, and Fritz. Did drop sets in three of those five matches for what it's worth, but obviously you look at the experience delta. This is major semifinal number 48 for Novak Djokovic. It's major semifinal number two for Yannick Sinner. Djokovic, by the way, the only opponent Sinner has ever faced now in major semifinals as he played him at Wimbledon as well. Djokovic 10-3 over his last 52 weeks uh, against top 10 opponents. You look for him at the majors since the start of 2021, which you just have to filter for because Novak Djokovic in his career, 69-31 against top 10 opponents. He's played over 100 matches. No, he's played exactly 100 matches. This is 101 against top 10 opponents alone at the majors. People are lucky in their career if they play 100 total matches at the majors. He has played 100 matches against top 100 opponents alone at the majors. That is a ridiculous statistic that I will be tweeting out as soon as I wrap up this podcast. And, of course, that statistic will say top 10 players, excuse me. 101st match against top 10 players at the majors. I do have a number for you because I paused the pod to look it up for some perspective. 109 total matches at the majors played by Diego Schwartzman. Diego Schwartzman is 30 years old, north of 30 maybe at this point. He is a guy who has been top 10 in the world. He's a guy who's played some serious major tennis throughout the course of his career. I think every player would aspire to get to that many matches. He's played 109 matches at the majors, Diego Schwartzman has. Djokovic has played pretty much one Diego Schwartzman career worth of major matches against just top 10 opponents. What are we even doing? Like sometimes you just, it's a statistic like that that makes my jaw drop. Anyways, you look at the more recent success. That's why I went to 2021 specifically where he's 16 and 3 to again speak to what this, dare I say, iteration of Novak Djokovic has done. The question, of course, becomes now, what version of Yannick Sinner are we getting? Can the Yannick Sinner who pushed Djokovic so tightly and beat him twice down the home stretch of last season in two out of three set matches. Can he sustain that level against this sort of test throughout the course of three out of five? Certainly, if his run to this semifinal is any indication, Yannick Sinner has sustained that level, has found maybe even another gear in the best of five format to start 2024. You look at his Australian Open run, he has yet to drop a single set in any of the five matches that he's played, including wins over seeds. 0-1-3 against Baez, 4-5-3 against Hatchnov, then the 4-6-3 win against Andre Rublev in the quarters that saw him fight off eight, all eight, excuse me, break points that he faced. You look for Yannick Sinner. He's been broken just twice in 12 sets of tennis. Excuse me, 15 sets of tennis thus far. He's been broken just twice. He's holding 97.2. 97.2% of the time now, Yannick Sinner has been holding uh, to start 2024. And of course, that number is a number that's really applied since the start of Wimbledon for Sinner, who of course made the semifinal of that event. I know I've alluded to this number earlier in the week, but you look for Yannick Sinner since the start of Wimbledon. He's 37-5 and overall. The losses, Djokovic twice, Shelton, Zverev, Dusan Lajevic in Cincinnati, but of course he had won Canada the week before, so we'll call it 37-4 and four and forget that Lajevic match ever happened. During that stretch of time, he's holding 90.8%. That's Isner-like. That's Kyrgios-like. That's Prime Federer-like. If you are over 90% in the men's game, you are the elite of the elite. That's the men's equivalent of Serena Williams' Power Tennis Country Club, but maybe it, we'll just call it the John Isner Hold Club. you got to be this tall to get in, this tall meaning 90%. I mean, again, 
That's who he's been now for six months. 97 is the next level of that, but he has been elite. Top five as a server, not just with the serve itself, but the plus one forehand he's able to hit, the plus one backhand he's able to hit. Although for what it's worth, an ace percentage at a career high, 9.5%. So he's hitting aces one out of every 10 first serves that he makes as well. Free points, always a blessing for any player. During this stretch, he's 10-2 and two against top 10 opponents, wins over Alcaraz, Medvedev, and Djokovic during this stretch of time. Multiple wins over Rublev as well. Like everything about it feels real, right? That this Yannick Sinner rise feels sustainable. That this is him making that final leap to the final frontier, the last peak of the mountaintop you can get to. I mean, obviously, he still has to climb all the way there and win a slam title, but in terms of the level you need to display to ultimately get there, Yannick Sinner has checked off every other checkbox except actually making a slam final and winning a slam title. He's done just about everything else now the sport has to offer. Can he do it in best of five against Novak Djokovic? That is obviously the question entering this match is physically, will he have enough gas left in the tank to sustain the relentless shot making, the relentless aggression, the relentless offensive nature that he's been able to put forward? And again, 15 straight sets to start this 2024 season. Will he be able to do what he did against Novak Djokovic at the end of last year, which is where we get to now. Let's talk tactics in this one. Enough on the statistics. How did Yannick Sinner beat Novak Djokovic twice to end last season? I know this is going to sound sacrilegious coming out of my mouth. He did it by playing through the backhand. And I know that sounds remarkably stupid because Novak Djokovic has the best backhand in ATP Tour history, in men's tennis history, maybe even across the board, just tennis history period. That backhand is that elite as a weapon. Um, a defensive shot obviously his on the slide backhand down the line cross court pass his backhand return his ability to take it early on the rise neutralize and take time away from you his ability to absorb Rafa's forehand cross with his backhand there are many reasons why Novak Djokovic's backhand is the best in the world but it is also his steady sh- uh, his steadying shot it is also the shot he's more comfortable playing a neutral ball with at least early that 75% pace where he'll try to lull you uh, to sleep cross court try to bait you into pressing his forehand on the run and obviously he's Novak freaking Djokovic he hits his on the run forehand on a dime every single time Yannick Sinner didn't wasn't, you know, again, Yannick Sinner didn't take the bait. Yannick Sinner was patient going through that backhand wing, forcing Djokovic to be the one to feel a pressure to change direction down the line, forcing Djokovic to be the one to prematurely pressure that on-the-run Sinner forehand, which, again, he gets outside the ball as well as anyone to generate angle on his forehand cross, can also step up and slap it down the line behind you if you start to cheat over and he has enough time to get to that ball as well. Just again, it was Sinner baiting Djokovic into into attacking prematurely. Sinner baiting Djokovic into for into forcing something early. Uh, I know those things mean the same word because Yannick Sinner displayed this physicality, this relentlessness, this consistency, not just straight up consistency in a pushing sense, but a consistency with his pace, with his depth. I mean, again, like he matched Djokovic for two and a half, three hours in those Davis Cup and ATP Tour Finals victories. That was best of three sets, though. And at that point, it's two sets to one. And the question is, obviously, it was the end of the year. So Djokovic wasn't as fresh as perhaps he will certainly be now. Djokovic also knows how to pace himself a little bit better at the majors, has been in these stages, obviously, 48 times to Sinner's second time. Best of five is a different monster. And obviously for Yannick Sinner, despite all the success, 10-2 and two against top 10 opponents over his last 52 weeks, you look for Sinner at the major, 3-9 and nine against top 10 opponents. His win over Andre Rublev, his first win over a top 10 opponent at the major since beating Carlos Alcaraz back at the 2022 Wimbledon. It's Djokovic's 11th Australian Open for previous 10 times. He's reached the semis. He's gone on to win the event. You've got all that history mixed in as well fundamentally, structurally, all the things are still there for Yannick Sinner to have success. That game plan of patience, pace, but 
discipline through that Djokovic backhand corner, hoping he presses too soon, hoping he pops something up. Because I'm just telling you, the the thing that makes this particular version of Djokovic so potent is the aggression he now plays with with his forehand. That ball just has more action, more pace, more bite behind it than it did early in or in his career. And guess what? It didn't need to have as much bite behind it early in his career because physically he could just wear you down over time in ways that he just doesn't want to do anymore. He's so precise with his spots, both on the serve, both obviously with his plus one forehand and approaching and getting to the net and pressuring you. That said, I do think Sinner passes extraordinarily well. He's moving extraordinarily well, doing all of these things better than the 22-year-old has ever done them. And the best part is he comes into this match dare I say, the fresher of the two physically. I think Djokovic has spent more time on court getting to this semifinal than he has any of his previous 10. Sinner's yet to drop a set and has slowly but surely been able to callous himself up. Dare I say even, I mean, he just completely overwhelmed his first three opponents, but the wins over Hatchinov and Sinner, he was tested, and yet those matches never in doubt again. He was unbroken in his match against Andre Rublev. <sighs> He's serving so well. Again, his pace is overwhelming people on the men's side the way Sabalenka's pace is overwhelming people on the women's side. I test-wise, Sinner's been like Sinner's best has been better than Djokovic's best. Sinner has overwhelmed opponents with his pace, including Andre Rublev. Djokovic just broke Taylor Fritz down. Djokovic didn't have to break Adrian Manorino down, but Prismich, Popper, and Echeverry, he was just able to sustain, obviously, a base level that is higher than any of those guys were able to sustain past the point of a set or two. Like Again, Fritz played Djokovic even for two sets. I think he's going to get an even bigger test from Sinner for the first three. The question is, can Sinner do it in the fourth? Can Sinner do it in the fifth? For what it's worth, I wanted to look up this statistic just on the off chance this match goes to five sets, as I really think it might. You look for Yannick Sinner in his career in five-set matches. Yannick Sinner overall 5-7 uh, and seven in his career against five-setters, has never beaten a top-ten opponent in a five-setter. You look for him in his career against four-setters as well, 13-2 and two in four sets. That's interesting. He's 13-2 and two in four-setters. He's 5-7 and seven in his career in five-setters. I'm not going to look up the Djokovic number because I'm sure it's gaudy. Oh, in three in his last three. Uh, one in three in five setters last year. Went over Fuchovic. Losses to Tsitsipas, Altmaier, and Zverev, respectively. I mean, again, beating Djokovic at a major, winning a five-set match, those are the the last two in the toughest hurdle, hurdles any player has to face. That's what Yannick Sinner has left. I just think Djokovic right now is so precise with his spots Man, but so was Andre Rublev. Rublev was hitting the serve in the forehand, uh, the serve forehand well. He just didn't have enough depth on his backhand to pressure Sinner enough to where Sinner could be aggressive on that wing. In a way, again, Djokovic will just have more depth on that side. I'm picking Djokovic in five just because he's Novak Djokovic. I think Yannick Sinner has played better tennis at this major to date than Novak Djokovic has. But for 15 years, we've learned that doesn't matter because when Novak Djokovic is ready to turn it on, his best at this major in particular is always better than everyone else's. And yet, like, couldn't you see Sinner pulling a Stan Wawrinka-type performance, which is the only time we've really ever seen Djokovic lose in Australia when he's playing his best? I'm throwing out the Hyun Chung match. Like, isn't there a world where Sinner's just firing down the line winners, swinging freely, playing with confidence, playing with nothing to lose? Even though he has been so good of late, he is still still clearly here the challenger. Djokovic the favorite. That said, Djokovic has lost twice to Sinner, so there's a chip on his shoulder in a way there hasn't been maybe in other matches this event. Uh, it's going to be so good. This one's living up to the hype. I'm taking Djokovic in five because he's Novak freaking Djokovic. But Yannick Sinner is going to push him. And Yannick Sinner might lose this match, but if your takeaway coming out of this is that Yannick Sinner isn't ready for the big stages, I just don't see that ever being the case. I think Sinner is ready for the big stage. I just think this is one more time Djokovic gets over that hurdle. But why couldn't Sinner pull an Alcaraz and beat a Djokovic in five? At least we've seen it happen over the past six months. And Sinner has played as well as anyone during that stretch of time. 
I'm picking Djokovic, but this match is going to be very, very good. Buckle your seatbelts for what is, again, one of our two men's single semifinals. And then I pitched this one pretty profusely yesterday as we saw their results in the quarterfinals come to fruition. But there is, again, an alternate universe where Daniil Medvedev and Sasha Zverev is the defining rivalry on the ATP Tour right now, where Djokovic... Nadal, Federer faded away a little bit earlier, and these two, both in the prime of their careers, are one and two in the world. They have multiple slam titles under their belts, and here they are competing once again at a major with a big prize on the line. Now, for what it's worth, these two have faced each other more than any other opponent in their careers. Eight, it, They've faced each other 18th time. This is their 19th head-to-head. Medvedev 11-7 and seven in the career head-to-head. It is their first time playing at a major. That is simply stunning, given these two have been top 10, top 5 talents overlapping for the last half decade. Certainly 5, if not 6, half decade plus, and they've never faced off at a major. It's fascinating. Maybe it's because they've often been on other sides of majors. Again, I'd have to look at every draw to see why, and you'd think they'd have to play in a final, which these guys haven't been in that many of, but... First career matchup at a major for these two who, again, had a whole breakpoint episode on Netflix based on their rivalry um, or at least trying to sell their rivalry as one of the defining rivalries. And look, they've played everywhere else significant. They've played at tour finals multiple times. They've played in Masters events multiple times, including the Shanghai Masters final back in 2019. They played in the Tour Finals final in 2021. Zverev winning that one. Medvedev got the Shanghai Masters. I mean, they've played in many significant events, just never a major. And honestly, regardless of, again, personal feelings towards Sasha Zverev, should he be playing right now, faces two credible accusations of domestic violence, one of which currently being adjudicated in the German public court system. You always, uh, uh, excuse me, German judicial system. You have to mention that whenever you cover Sasha Zverev. I do think for the sake of tennis, it's important that these two play at a major at some point because these are the two defining faces of their generation for better or worse. If you want to put Tsitsipas on that mount, three-man Mount Rushmore as well, Although I don't know if it qualifies as a Mount Rushmore if there's one slam title between the three. But in that category as well, you want to throw team on there and call it the 1990s. And now at least there's two slams on the mantle. Fine. These two should have played at a major before today. And honestly, they should have played at a major semifinal before today. And so that it's finally happening given the history and the significance of this matchup in particular over the last five years, it's a good thing that tennis fans get to see it. And look again, Medvedev 11-7 and seven in the career head-to-head. You look at their matchups on hard courts, specifically Daniil Medvedev uh, in those matchups, 9-7 and seven advantage. And for what it's worth, Zverev won five of the first six, Medvedev winning eight of the last 10, and last year won uh, two of their three, excuse me, three of their four battles on hard courts, wins at Indian Wells, Beijing, and the Tour Finals. Zverev a win in Cincinnati. Um, all of their matches were pretty competitive, to be honest. All of their matches always have been pretty competitive, except for maybe earliest in the career when Medvedev was just breaking in. Zverev a little bit more established. I mean, look, it's a big opportunity for Medvedev, who's in his eighth career tour semifinal, looking to make a sixth career slam final, his first in Australia, excuse me, since 2022 and his third in Australia overall would be three out of the last four seasons, actually. He's found himself in the Australian Open final on hard courts now. Daniil Medvedev, 11-6 and six against top 10 opponents in his last 52 weeks. Obviously, his most recent win, five sets over Hoopy Hercots in the quarterfinals. Medvedev, a weird road to get here. Obviously, the 3.30 a.m. finish against Rusevori, then straight sets over FA where it felt like, okay, he's steadying the ship. Then all of a sudden, it's four sets against Nuno Borges. Five sets when he's up a break in the fourth against Hubi Hercots. Medvedev's put in some serious court time in getting to this semifinal. And yet, again, for Daniil Medvedev, this is who he's been at the majors. 
hardcourt majors in particular now for half a decade. Like he gets to final fours. He gives himself an opportunity for a bite at the big apple. Again, looking to make a six slam final. All of them have come on hard courts, folks. I think the track record, the pedigree speaks for itself on the Zverev side of things. He's in his seventh career semifinal at the majors, one in five in those matches. The one win, obviously 2020 U.S. Open. It's his uh, second career Australian Open semifinal, first since 2020. You look for Zverev now with his win over Carlos Alcaraz, that four-set win where, honestly, probably should have been a straight-set win. He was up 6-1, 6-3, 5-3, serving for that match. Zverev now 7-13 against top 10 opponents over the last 52 weeks. But for what it's worth, he has won his last four and has now won five of his last six as well. So he lost seven straight against the top 10 to start last season, has righted the ship, reminded us all why he ascended to this level so quickly in his career. Again, he's won four in a row against top 10 opponents, five of the last six, including two hardcourt victories against Carlos Alcaraz. That win over Alcaraz, by the way, his second top 10 victory at a major in his last three, a win over Sinner at last year's U.S. Open as well. Zverev 3-14 in his career against top 10 opponents, but keep in mind he lost his first 11 top 10 battles at the majors. He's now 3-3 three three in his last three wins over Alcaraz twice and a win over Sinner. Losses to Alcaraz, Rude, and Rafa, respectively. Those are the stats. For what it's worth, Tennis Abstract 65.4% favorite. Now let's talk about the matchup. It's always fascinating to me because in my mind, there was a moment pre-Alcaraz, pre-Sinner where 2017 to 2020, these two embodied what I thought the future of the ATP Tour would look like. Two guys, six foot six in stature, these 125 mile per hour plus easy serves and yet a fluidity of movement, a consistency of ground stroke. A well-roundedness to their game beyond the typical big man framing That just epitomizes what the modern athlete was capable of in this sport in a way they just weren't in the 2000s, in the 1990s, certainly back in the 1980s when serving and volleying was far more prevalent. These guys all have the weapons to do those things given their inherent size and yet the movement for these two, the fluidity in and out of corners, the backhand consistency, the backhand under pressure, the ability to make magic happen when on the run, you're not supposed to be able to do what these two are able to do at their size. Just again, Zverev in particular is probably at his best when he is using the pace, the heaviness of his forehand, the drive on his backhand when he's inside the baseline, using his size to sneak forward, cut off angles, again, overwhelm you as an aggressive baseliner. And yet we know he can get tentative and be six feet behind the baseline and try to grind opponents down when his back is pressed against the wall. Tell me anything I just said about Zverev doesn't apply to Medvedev as well, who, yes, is at his best when he's being unpredictable, changing direction with his forehand, making you uncomfortable, and yet a guy who's going to stand 12 feet behind the baseline on the return of serve, seed you that ground, try to bait you into prematurely attacking him because he does cover time ground so well and passes so extraordinarily. Again, obviously... He dips those volleys and uh, his passing shots in a way where you, you're going to have a tough volley to hit no matter what, even if you still have a lot of space to work with. He just pressures you and makes you uncomfortable and takes away the thing you want to do best and you know reinforces any doubt you might have at your mind in your mind with his relentless pressure. That's all the things he can do to Sasha Zverev. Again, that's why these two always play competitive matches because there are moments where Medvedev's court positioning allows Zverev to be the aggressor and he's confident and will assert himself in doing so. And then all of a sudden, Medvedev rips a few winners by him. Now it's a role reversal. Now Medvedev gets to dictate. Now Medvedev gets to rip a few big serves. Now Medvedev gets to start working in the drop shots, the weird forehand yank you out wide cross court angles. These guys, there's a lot of familiarity. There's elements of the Spider-Man meme in both of them. Obviously, Zverev's technique far more traditional, but again, both extraordinarily consistent, extraordinarily effective. For what it's worth, you look at the numbers. Medvedev, one of six guys to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage over the last 52 weeks. Medvedev, one of seven guys. You'd add him and Hatchinov to the already existing list. Uh, Excuse me, one of eight guys. You'd add him and Hatchinov to the already existing list to rank top 20 amongst top 100 players in both hold and break percentage. 
The Medvedev serve to the Zverev forehand. Zverev will leave some balls short. Medvedev, again, they, here's the thing. There are no secrets between these two. When you are playing a 19th time in a tour-level match, you know what to expect from the other guy. You know the spots they want to hit. You know the things they both do and don't want to do. Zverev was playing. Zverev played better than I mean, Zverev made 85% of his first serves against Alcaraz. If he does that against Medvedev, Given the fluctuations in level we have seen from Medvedev in just about every match that he's played, I would I do think Zverev's played better tennis to this point of the tournament. <sighs> Medvedev just has a way, though, of getting underneath Zverev's skin of late that, again, Zverev is always a little bit wounded mentally, always a little bit vulnerable at this stage of a major, and particularly the one in five shows itself. And when Zverev gets a little... Tentative, obviously, he'll get a little passive, and you know, again, Medvedev will pounce on that fact. That said, sometimes Medvedev, when he is at his worst, is when he starts to get a little slap happy, when he starts to get a little over anxious, and maybe he won't want to be patient. Maybe again, he'll start to overextend himself, gives Zverev a few free points with a few errant forehand slaps. I think both of these matches go five sets. I think we are going to have the blockbuster men's semifinals we deserve. That's a lie. I think Zverev's going to beat Medvedev in four. I just, I think the level's been better. I think he's hitting through the court more confidently. That's a lie. I think Zverev's going to win in five. Because Medvedev's just going to hang around. The octopus always does. And again, this match could go over five hours. This match could go till 10 a.m., 11 a.m. Eastern time, be played late into the night. I don't know which one's the first match. I think they're both going five. I think we're in for a late night in Melbourne. I'll take Zverev just because he's serving so well right now and with all other things equal, even though Medvedev has the mental edge. I'll take that serve in this moment above all else. But look, it's the business end of the year's first major. Everything down the stretch going to be entertaining. And that is why, even though our coverage of kickoff weekend begins tomorrow, we will still do our best to try and have podcasts for you recapping each and every day. Now, I apologize if tomorrow's podcast comes either way too early or way too late in the day. It'll be one of the two extremes, depending on if I can wake myself up. But again, we got plenty more content to come for all of you listeners as we all enjoy the home stretch of this 2024 Australian Open. Of course, as I just alluded to, though, if you're looking for more tennis this weekend or you need something to fill your daytime hours here in the United States or whatever it is you are based, make sure to check out our coverage of the ceremonial symbolic start of the 2024 college tennis season. It's ITA kickoff weekend. We'll be on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel and ESPN Plus Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, all the best teams in the country in action so make sure you tune in a shout out as always to our super producer daniel westoff for the of an editing job he does day in day out making all of our content possible a shout out to him a shout out as well to the support we get from our dear friends at tennis point remember it's tennis-point.com the promo code is cr15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world with that said for our fantastic super producer daniel westoff our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both crack rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin what we say, that's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.